Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the HVMN podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Lat Mansour, a PhD in physiology, anatomy, and genetics, and the research lead of health via modern nutrition. And if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave a review. And if you have any question, leave us a comment. And as always, we appreciate it if you can share it with a friend. Now, without further ado, let's get into this episode of HVMN podcast. Hello, today we have Dr. Chris Palmer on Health Via Modern Nutrition Podcast. So great to have you, Chris. How are you? I am well. Thank you for having me, Lap. I am so excited for our interview because your area of expertise is so novel and so revolutionary because looking at metabolic psychiatry, looking at psychiatric disorders in general it, as a metabolic disorder. Now that is so much to unpack. So that is exactly what we're going to do today. Uh, before we go on further, could you please tell our listeners your background and your story, how you get into your current um, area of expertise? So I am a Harvard psychiatrist. I've been uh, here for 27 years. Um, uh, I have done a wide variety of things. So my day job for over 20 years now is I'm the director of the Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education, uh, which means I oversee educational programs for McLean Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I... Um, I've also done about 15 years of neuroscience research in the fields of addiction medicine and sleep medicine. Uh, throughout all of that, I have always maintained a private practice, and the patients that I treat tend to be treatment-resistant. So I almost never see a patient first-line, first episode of depression or anxiety or even psychosis. Usually, I see patients after they have seen Numerous other treaters have been in and out of hospitals, have usually tried dozens of medications, years of psychotherapy, sometimes electroconvulsive therapy, and then they end up in my office. Um, <clears throat> and I think the reason I'm here, the reason, that, you know, the, the work that I've been doing, you know, for really for 20 years um, has been in the area of using low carbohydrate ketogenic diets in treatment resistant it started with treatment resistant depression um, but also anxiety disorders personality disorders and others um, but i kind of laid low with that work because it's highly controversial ketogenic diet is controversial as most of your listeners know um, and i didn't really want to rock the boat i didn't want to lose my license uh, as some low carb physicians have or have at least you know had threatened um, and so I was just using this treatment uh, with the patients in front of me, and everything kind of changed in 2016 when I ended up using the ketogenic diet with a longstanding patient of mine with schizoaffective disorder, um, initially just to help him lose weight. I had no, uh, no idea that it would help his psychotic symptoms. Within weeks, you know, not only did he start losing weight, but I began to notice a powerful antidepressant effect. And within about two months, <clears throat> I began to notice a dramatic and remarkable antipsychotic effect um, and additional mood stabilizing effect. That man um, went on to lose a tremendous amount of weight, has kept it off, but much more importantly, was able to do things he hadn't been able to do. Um, 
And so he achieved not only symptom reduction, but functional recovery as well in at least some areas. Um, as a result of that, I have been doing research on this diet in dozens of patients now. I have been collaborating with researchers from around the world, teaching, speaking about this topic uh, for years now. And um, we have dozens of patients. Uh, I am aware of at least 100 or more people who have put their chronic mental disorders into full and lasting remission using ketogenic diet and other lifestyle strategies. Um, we have at least five, five uh, controlled trials of the ketogenic diet for serious mental disorders underway now. There are additional trials um, underway. And so it's actually all exciting. Yeah. I, and then, and, you know, Dr. Chris Palmer, as, as he was saying, you know, running a lot of clinical trials, and one of which is with uh, the lab that I got my PhD in, in a small town called Oxford in the UK. <laughs> So that's awesome. that's quite you know funny because it's such a small world. Now for our listeners here as well, just to go back to basics a little bit, could you give us a definition of psychoaffective disorder and psychosis as well as functional recovery? How do you define that? So, um, so schizoaffective disorder is really a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So it is somebody who has chronic, usually daily hallucinations and or delusions. Um, delusions are essentially just false beliefs. Um, people would usually call them crazy or being out of touch with reality. Um, but in addition to that, people with schizoaffective disorder often are uh, have a lot of what are called negative symptoms. So they may neglect their hygiene. They uh, they have trouble focusing, concentrating. They have trouble staying on task. More, most often, they are disabled by their illness. Um, sometimes they live in group homes or they live with family who need to watch over them or take help take care of them. Um, and uh, it is really probably one of the most horrible diagnostic labels that we assign in the medical field. To tell somebody that they have schizophrenia or to tell a parent that your child has schizophrenia. I've had many patients tell me, I would rather you tell me my child has cancer wow. than schizophrenia. Because cancer is treatable. Cancer can be cured. When you tell me my kid has schizophrenia, you're telling, it's a life sentence. You're telling me my child's life is ruined. Um... What was your second question? I forget. Psychosis. <laughs> um, so yeah, when they go through psychosis, like what what are we looking at? So psychosis is usually, again, it's this concept of being out of touch with reality. Most people would call it being crazy, but um, it means that they're usually having hallucinations or delusions. So hallucinations are hearing things that aren't there, usually voices. So people hear voices in their head. Sometimes they'll talk back to them. So, you know, when you walk by a homeless person on the street and you hear them talking to themselves or mumbling, they're often talking to the voices in their heads. Um, or they are delusional. And delusions, um, again, are just false beliefs. 
They can be paranoid delusions. You know, people are out to get me. The government is conspiring against me. Aliens have technologies or, you know, other people have technologies. They can broadcast my thoughts to everybody. They can read my thoughts. Um, uh, people are trying to hurt me. People are talking about me. If they go out in public and they see people out in public, they will assume that these people are, you know, part of the conspiracy, part of, you know, part of everything. If they, if somebody glances at them, they assume that that was intentional, that the person is getting ready to harm them in some way, um, or maybe photographing them or something. And so these people are usually tormented by these experiences. Um, you know, they don't see them as symptoms. They see them as real. They believe that these things are really happening. They are really hearing voices and they assume that these voices are coming from some source, either God or, you know, these families tormenting them or technologies planting thoughts that, you know, the, but the voices are real. They're not in their head. They're not a symptom of an illness. They are real voices. And the, the paranoid delusions and other delusions are real. The, the, and, and that's part of the challenge in treating people with these illnesses is that um, they often lack insight. They, they don't understand that they have an illness. They, they don't understand that these things aren't really happening. To them, everything is really happening. Right, because and in their world, that is the reality. It is their reality. So what? And their their brain is telling them right. that these things are really happening. And they are seeing things that they they can't differentiate whether it's real or not compared to other people. So what's the difference between symptom reduction and functional recovery? So, um, you know, it's possible to reduce some symptoms, and most of our current treatments fall in that category. So most of most you know most people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder are put on antipsychotic or mood stabilizing medications, and you know an antipsychotic medication can reduce psychotic symptoms, meaning that they you know either people hear voices less often, or have fewer paranoid delusions, or um they're maybe not as bothered by those symptoms. Um, but antipsychotics sometimes can put illnesses in remission, which means the person no longer has symptoms. But even if an antipsychotic makes all of the psychotic symptoms go away, makes all of the delusions and the hallucinations go away, the person can still be quite impaired and have all of these negative symptoms. So they can still have cognitive impairment, motivational impairment, um, impairment in um, hygiene and grooming. They don't recognize the need to take a shower even once a week. They don't recognize that they might, you know, smell a little and other people might notice that. They don't recognize that their hair is uncombed and tangled and even dirty, and they just don't even notice it or care about it. Um, and so if somebody has symptom reduction of hallucinations but continues to have all of those other symptoms, 
they often still are unable to function in society um, because you need motivation. You have to participate in society. You have you have to be at least cognizant of how other people perceive you. Um, and they often lack that awareness. A functional recovery or the ability to function in life is very different. There are people who can still be hallucinating or delusional who can hold a job and who can show up on time, who can make themselves look presentable, dress appropriately, you know, take a shower, all of the things that need to be done, but they might be hearing voices or believing false things still. That person could still have symptoms of schizophrenia, but be quite functional. Um, you know, obviously the, the ideal goal um, in treating patients with serious mental disorders would be to put their illness into full remission, which means they no longer have any of the symptoms, the positive or negative symptoms, mood symptoms, no symptoms, no anxiety, no what. They, they, they're just like everyone else in terms of their emotional and mental experiences, and they are able to function in society. They, they can engage in some type of productive activity, whether that's a job or a volunteer or helping around the house or having ro some role in society. People, it is, a, it is an important part of human existence to have a role in society, to be useful, to feel respected, to feel like you're contributing somehow. Um, and, uh, and, but there's more to it than that. It, it's about having relationships in life. It's about taking care of yourself, paying your own bills if you're you know, living independently, doing your grocery shopping, making your own meals, all of those things go into a functional recovery. Right. Um, thank you so much for that uh, that explanation. It makes so much more sense. And uh, it's it's funny when you mentioned uh, when you talked about psychosis, you were talking about the voices, the hallucinations, and that reminded me of a doctor that I spoke to a couple of months ago, and she was using ketogenic diet to treat anorexia. And then I reached out to her again after I listened to your podcast with a Huberman Lab, and turns out she actually met you before, Bob, uh, Dr. Barbara Skol Skolnick. Yes, I do yes. know her. So, because she, she, the way she explained um, with anorexia is that the the you know the the patients um, hearing voices that say that they're fat, they're like not attractive, and 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 you know ask them to not eat and all that. And after doing the ketogenic diet, it's sort of the voices stop. So this is where it, it it's becoming more and more interesting how we view mental illness. Um, and psychiatric disorders from a metabolism point of view. So tell us what do we understand so far of mental illness and what is wrong with the way we are currently treating it? So, you know, right now, if you ask most of the leading psychiatrists and neuroscientists, what causes mental illness? <clears throat> the really good ones will tell you no one knows. It's too complex. Um, all we know are risk factors for it. And these risk factors usually get lumped into what's called the biopsychosocial model. 
which says that there are biological, psychological, and social risk factors for mental illness, but nobody knows exactly what they're doing and nobody knows why or how they fit together and how that leads to what we call mental illness. The biological, you know, all of these factors include things that are common, you know, most people have heard of, things like neurotransmitters, hormones, genetics or epigenetics, inflammation, but also psychological and social factors. So trauma, abuse, neglect, bullying and teasing, um, being in a minority, being LGBTQ, uh, and the stigma or societal stigma that comes with that, um, um, or the family stigma from parents, um, that those are all risk factors for mental illness. But exactly how all of those fit together to result in different mental disorders, nobody can say for sure. Some people like to stick with simplistic views, like, well, it's all trauma. Everybody's traumatized. Everybody's got a mental illness, must have been traumatized, and they just need to process their trauma, and that'll fix everything. Well, that's not really panning out, actually. Um, and it's not quite so simple, and not everybody who has a mental illness has been traumatized. That's not really true. Um, and so you can quickly corner those people with lots of examples that disprove that hypothesis. Um, and likewise, you know, some people will say it's all chemical imbalances. Well, if it's all chemical imbalances, why can't we help people? Why, like, you know, and then they're, well, maybe there are different chemicals and we just don't even know about all the chemicals. And I mean, so all of these people you can quickly corner into, uh, you know, cases like numerous, innumerable, like millions of people cases of, well, I can't really explain that. And, and they, you can quickly get them to, yeah, no one really knows. Um, uh, I'm just talking about the people who have been abused. Um, and what I'm arguing is that if you actually do a deep dive into all of these different risk factors, you actually come out the other side with the only, there's only one conclusion. There's only one possible way to connect all of those risk factors. And that possible way is to kind of declare that mental disorders are metabolic brain disorders. And so what I mean by that is that if you look at any one risk factor for mental illness, almost across the board, probably not 100%, but it's over 90%. Over 90% of the risk factors for mental illness also confer risk for metabolic illnesses. Obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And they're the exact same risk factors, starting all the way with genetics, to epigenetics, to womb environment, to early adversity in life, but also including, including diet, exercise, sleep, light exposure, everything. And the only way to really connect the dots of mental illness is to see the big picture, to kind of see the forest from the trees. And when you see the forest, 
the conclusion is that mental disorders are metabolic brain disorders. Now that is, you know, a balls of claim and bold statement, right? Um, what led you to, you know, from your work and your research and your, you know, your patient, seeing patients led you to think that mental illness is essentially metabolic illness of the brain? You know, it, it started, it started really with my desire to promote the ketogenic diet as a treatment for serious mental illness. And I quickly realized nobody's going to believe this. Um, and how can I get, how can, like, I can convince the low carbon keto community. I've got them sold, <laughs> but I, but I want to, I want to convince mainstream mental health. I want this treatment offered in psychiatrists' office and hospitals and other places. I want this to be a mainstream treatment. And so I quickly realized, okay, I need to do a deep dive in the science of the ketogenic diet to understand what in the hell is it doing to the brain and how can I explain why and how it might play a role in serious mental illness. You know, the first gift that I had was that the ketogenic diet is an evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. And we use epilepsy treatments in psychiatry all the time in tens of millions of people. And we have a tremendous amount of neuroscience literature telling us exactly, or at least some of the mechanisms of the ketogenic diet on the brain. And so it changes neurotransmitters, calcium channel regulation, decreases brain inflammation, um, changes gene expression, the gut microbiome, all of these things. And so right off the bat, I recognize, well, all of those things play a role in mental illness too. So it's kind of a no-brainer. It's kind of obvious. And just from an empirical stance, we use epilepsy treatments and all sorts of mentally ill people like we and we for a wide range of diagnoses for depression anxiety uh, schizophrenia bipolar alcoholism uh, other substance use disorders um, we use epilepsy treatments in a wide variety of mental disorders i could have stopped there and there's a whole group of researchers pursuing that line of research, trying to develop an evidence base to, to, you know, to show that the ketogenic diet can be an effective treatment for mental illness. But I did not stop there because I, I recognize this is too important because I'm putting schizophrenia into remission and that is not supposed to happen. Yeah, because in the beginning I'm you putting, mentioned you mentioned schizophrenia is a life sentence. It is supposed to be a life sentence, and that is largely what it is. And same with bipolar, and unfortunately for a lot of people, chronic depression is a life sentence too. And you know, depression is now the leading cause of disability on the planet, and so it's it, it's increasingly treatment resistant and increasingly a life sentence for a lot of people um which is heartbreaking and you know we need to do better and so i recognized wait this is bigger than just a treatment for mental illness 
this might be able to tell me something as an academic psychiatrist about this fundamental question, what causes mental illness in the first place? And so I ended up kind of leaving behind the ketogenic diet. I went much, much further. And I, I started to explore, you know, I, st I still stuck with the ketogenic diet for a little while, but recognized, wait, the ketogenic diet's also a weight loss diet. It's also really good for type 2 diabetes. And they're even, it's good for epilepsy. And they're even studying it for Alzheimer's disease. And at first glance, I'm thinking, wait, what the hell do those things have to do with each other? Like, those are all different things. Obesity, seizures, Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, and mental illness? Like, what do they have to do with each other? And yet, the more I thought about it as an academic psychiatrist, I realized, wait, they have everything to do with each other. <laughs> they all have very, very strong bi-directional relationships with each other. Meaning that if you have, for instance, Alzheimer's disease, type 2 diabetes makes it much more likely that you'll develop Alzheimer's disease. But having a mental illness earlier in life also makes it more likely that you'll have Alzheimer's disease. Once you develop Alzheimer's disease, almost everyone with Alzheimer's disease has symptoms of mental illness. About, you know, almost all of them have depression, anxiety, agitation, something. But about half of them also have hallucinations and delusions. And those are the hallmark symptoms of schizophrenia. And so when you think about it, it's like, wait, th those are awfully similar now. Like everybody with Alzheimer's ends up developing symptoms of mental illness. Wait, that's a really important connection. And this keto diet is being used to treat both. Maybe there are some maybe there are some really important clues and connections that we can start to put together based on a bigger picture, based on seeing the forest from the trees. And the the more that I dove into all of these different areas, the more I was led to these tiny things in our cells called mitochondria. And when I finally kind of did a very deep dive into the science of mitochondria and unraveled many of the mysteries and how they relate to all of these different disorders, including mental disorders, I feel that, uh, and I'm, I think I have put it together. I think I kind of was able to paint an outline of the big picture paint an outline of the forest. By no means do we have all the details of this forest. No way. There's so much more to learn. So in some ways, I feel like I've mapped out a big picture. And it has very important information. Once you see this big picture, it answers numerous questions that we have not been able to answer in the mental health field about the connections between physical illness and mental illness. Um, much more importantly, it offers new treatments that come with the hope of healing and recovery and remission as opposed to just reducing symptoms. So in that way, I feel that this theory is actually critically important and is very practical 
and accessible right here, right now in 2023. To, to share the honest truth is if you really, really understand the theory, it's like opening a door to an entirely new universe and my mind is blown and I'm quite overwhelmed with all of the complexity that we now have to unravel. I am overwhelmed with all of the additional questions about, wait, what about this? What about that? How does this work? How does that fit together? I feel like this has been a leap for the mental health field, but it's a leap that takes us to another area of exploration. Um, it, it's not that the brain energy theory answers all of the questions that we needed answered. Um, but it leads us, it gives us a map. It gives us a coherent, logical, testable map to truly begin to help people. Thank you. And Dr. Chris Palmer also um, explained a lot of this in his book called Brain Energy. So uh, if you guys want to check out more about, you know, um, Dr. Chris's um, work, um, go and, and buy the book and read it. Um, and it does seem so complicated because, you know, I did my PhD in type 2 diabetic metabolism and I did a whole PhD on it and it's such a small area. And now you're talking about not only mental illness as an area of, of, of expertise, but you're now bringing in the whole area of metabolism and the disorders and the brain and the other like organs and the muscles and insulin resistance. Yes. You're opening a can of, a can of worms here. The, and, the, and the real answer is that I think that's probably the biggest criticism yeah. of the theory is Chris Palmer, you've bitten off more than you can chew. It's too much. And what I say to those people is see the forest from the trees. Um, just because you can see the forest does not mean that you understand the details of every tree in that forest. It doesn't mean that you understand the details of all of the insects and animals and fungi and everything else existing in that forest. It doesn't mean you understand the complexity of soil and rain and um, the atmosphere and pollution and all of those effects on the forest. But it does mean that you can get yourself a little less scattered, a little less lost and confused, and you can see the big picture. And as I said, once you see the big picture, you can begin to map out lines of scientific inquiry that will really get us somewhere. Because right now, the mental health field is lost in the forest. They are lost and confused and disoriented. They are wandering aimlessly around this forest, not knowing what the hell they're doing, not with bad intention. And I really want, I just want to say that. I, I know that the way I just said that sounds malicious or mental health professionals in my experience, typically are very good, caring, kind people who desperately want to help. But we as a mental health field are wandering aimlessly in the forest. This is about rising above that forest, seeing the big picture, understanding that mental disorders are metabolic disorders, even though that's a lot to chew off, 
even though there's still a lot we need to learn, we can begin to progress. And, and again, more importantly, there are concrete solutions available today. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge our sponsors of this show, Ketone IQ, the best exogenous ketone you can take to elevate your blood ketone levels. I personally take it every day before a podcast to wire my brain up, before and after my workout to really feel my body. So give yourself a chance, take a shot, and you will feel the difference within minutes. So head over to hvmn.com and use the code HVMNPOD20, that is HVMNPOD20, for 20% off your purchase and enjoy your ketone IQ and give your brain the perfect fuel. Yeah, and it, it starts with the bigger vision. And from the, 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 the interviews that I've done on this show, I've you know, definitely learned that the human body is, is more sophisticated than we think. It's, it's more interrelated. Every process, every hormone, every enzyme is more interrelated than we think. And it's ironic because people like you and I, we go through the academic, academic um, journey and the, the more we learn, the further we go, the more narrow of a field we go into because we become, you know, the experts in our fields. And then when we try to apply that theory, that knowledge, that information to solve real life problems, i.e. like mental health or just in general metabolic disorders, then we have to actually open up that field of vision into a bigger, much, much bigger field because now we know that our knowledge is so small. Yes, we might know one mechanism, but without understanding or even looking at other mechanisms that are interrelated, interdependent on this mechanism, it's impossible for us to solve the root cause or the big picture. That is absolutely true. And what I, I, that is true from a scientific academic standpoint. And if we're really going to understand human metabolism and if we're really going to understand brain function, it, it's easy to get lost in this forest because it is so overwhelming. It is so massive. There is so much we don't know. But I take a different stance. And the different stance that I take is common sense. This is why growing up... Growing up in Indiana, that was one of like the most important things in, you know, where I grew up is, do you have common sense? Um, not can you understand complex, you know, academic details, but do you have common sense? And the common sense thing is that rates of metabolic disorders have skyrocketed in the last 50 years. Skyrocketed. Rates of mental disorders have also skyrocketed in the last 50 years. Culture after culture, society after society, at the same time that metabolic disorders begin increasing in cultures as they are westernized, so too do the rates of mental disorders. We've, we Most recently and clearly we've seen it in China, for instance. Uh, China had very low rates of metabolic disorders, very low rates of type 2 diabetes and obesity. And then as they westernized, the rates of obesity and diabetes started skyrocketing. Well, guess what else started skyrocketing at the exact same time? The rates okay. of mental disorders. They started skyrocketing um, because they had been very low in China as well. Um, and, and so when you use common sense, 
and see a big picture like that, that can tell us some really important big picture things. One, these disorders are not genetic disorders. These disorders are disorders of environment, primarily. It doesn't mean that genes don't play a role, and it certainly doesn't mean that epigenetics doesn't play a role, and it doesn't mean that epigenetics are not inheritable. So some of these things are inheritable, and clearly what your parents have done is going to affect you. Um, sometimes, you know, even before you're born, you come out of the womb more predisposed to metabolic and mental illness. Um, it's not your fault at all. It has nothing to do with your diet. It has to do with your parents' diet or your parents' environmental exposures. But it's important to note that it is not a permanent fixed genetic problem because that tells us there's something in our environment that is causing these disorders. But much, much more importantly, it tells us there is hope for healing. These are not permanent lifelong disorders. They, they don't have to be permanent lifelong sentences. If it's the environment, we can begin to identify what in the environment is causing these problems and we can try to address them. And addressing them is essentially using common sense strategies that most people know about. Diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction, minimize toxin exposure such as smoking, alcohol, marijuana, other drugs. Um, we need to really seriously look at prescription medicines because they can cause metabolic harm and we know that. When a diabetic goes, when somebody with diabetes goes on insulin, they begin gaining weight and their insulin resistance progressively gets worse. The start of insulin for type 2 diabetes is a downward spiral. Likewise, when people go on some psychiatric medications, they can cause massive amounts of weight gain, they can cause type 2 diabetes, they can cause other metabolic dysfunction, and that can be a downward spiral. And I think that's really important information. And so again, when you see this big picture, when you see the forest from the trees, you can begin to map out what is happening in our environment, what is happening in terms of diet, exercise, sleep, you know, cell phone use, social media use, all of these things. How are those things playing a role? What could we possibly do to intervene? And how can we help people change their lifestyle strategies, change their environment, so to speak, so that they can heal and recover? Now, it's interesting when you mentioned toxins, you included marijuana as, as part of it, because I know that, that, you know, marijuana has been used to treat certain disorders like anxiety or, or um, PTSD. Um, why do you include that as, as part of you, you know, part of uh, the toxin that you mentioned that may increase risks of mental disorders? So um, this is something that I get into detail in with the theory and in the book. But the, the nutshell answer is that marijuana impairs mitochondrial function. Um, that has been fairly well established in highly, highly reputable biological journals such as Nature and Cell. Um, so marijuana impairs mitochondrial function. 
And on the surface, one would think that's a bad thing. But if you are having a seizure, impairing mitochondrial function can actually stop a seizure. If you are having anxiety for no reason due to a hyper-excitable anxiety pathway or anxiety cells in your, bot in your brain, impairing metabolism in those cells can actually stop hyper-excitability or at least reduce it. Likewise with many of the other effects of marijuana. The challenge, and there are lots of prescription medicines that also do this, the challenge with using an intervention that impairs mitochondrial function is that yes, it can reduce symptoms in the short run and that can bring relief right away. And that unfortunately can be extraordinarily rewarding, which means it can become addictive for, to some people so they can get hooked on it. But the challenge is that if you are impairing cellular function over long periods of time, you're actually making those cells weaker or more vulnerable to further metabolic failure in the future. You are actually metabolically compromising those cells, and that means your illness will likely become chronic and or progressive. And in fact, that is what we see in the research studies. People who use marijuana chronically are not healing and then getting off their marijuana. They, are they require higher and higher doses of the marijuana and or the, the symptoms actually get worse. So people use marijuana to treat their anxiety on average their anxiety symptoms over a period of years are going to get worse. Now, they just assume, well, I had an anxiety disorder and my anxiety disorder is getting worse, so I need more marijuana and now I need some CBD on top of it and now I need some Xanax on top of it and now I need Zoloft on top of it, and be, but it's because I have an anxiety disorder. And what... And I'm not challenging that they started with an anxiety disorder maybe before they introduced any marijuana or any pills. So that there was a problem that caused anxiety. But what I'm saying is that the treatment, if it is causing metabolic harm, the treatment may in fact turn what could have been a short-term illness or disorder into now a chronic progressive disorder. And you are getting stuck in a vicious trap. Kind of like the person with type 2 diabetes who goes on insulin. Mm -hmm. It can be life-saving. It can be helpful. I'm not here to say we should ban it or outlaw it because in some situations, you, we need to stop seizures. In some situations, we need insulin to bring glucose down rapidly because a person's going to die from hyperglycemia. Um, so it's not that I want these medications banned, but I want people to understand the science of what they're actually doing. And I want people to more importantly understand the science that there are other treatment options that might promote long-term healing, that might allow you to be off medications, but much, much more importantly, 
not end up with a chronic progressive disorder. This is super interesting and it makes a lot of sense. You know, when you look at a disorder, you look at an illness, you want to find out what the root cause is and you actually treat the root cause instead of having temporary, temporary release of the symptoms. Now, what would happen if you give the same treatment to somebody who is having depression from traumatic events versus somebody who actually has brain metabolic disorder? So, you know, one of the one of the problems with the mental health field right now is that we don't distinguish those two things. The symptoms can be identical. So the symptoms of depression can be identical in somebody who just lost their family. So let's say a man has a wife and two kids. The wife and two kids are tragically killed in an automobile accident. He's going to get depressed. If he actually loved any of those people, he's going to get depressed. And it will be abnormal if he does not. He will, he will have a brain disorder, some kind of brain disorder if he doesn't get depressed. Um, and so he's going to get depressed. And according to DSM, he's only allowed to be depressed for 13 days. If he's depressed for 14 days, then he has a brain disorder called major depressive disorder. And that implies that he's got a brain disorder. And it implies, you know, and then we think about serotonin imbalances and maybe he could use a, an antidepressant. Well... I would say, no, that man is a normal human being experiencing a normal human experience. And the treatment for him is obvious. The treatment is psychological and social support. Now, it, it doesn't mean we don't use pills. If he really needs pills to help him sleep or if he really wants to try an antidepressant, I'm not necessarily going to stand in the way of any of that. But... I think we need to recognize he is having a normal human reaction and that that is not a disorder. Whereas other people do have disorders. Other people can have depression for no reason. And in those, so they're the same symptoms are developing for no good reason. And what I'm arguing is that you know, with the brain energy theory, what I am arguing is that the only way to understand that dysfunction of the brain is to see it as a metabolic problem in the brain cells. The only reason that somebody would develop depression symptoms for no good reason is because of metabolic dysfunction in those cells. And if, if they have metabolic dysfunction, then we need to look for root causes and we need to use metabolic treatment strategies to try to help that person heal and recover. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that, that makes perfect sense. If you are going through that traumatic event, you need to address that. And then versus if you are having metabolic disorder in the brain, then you have to address that instead. But then if we look at, you know, the symptoms being presented and just blanket statement, you know, say that generally this is how we're going to treat this kind of symptoms, then you're just simply treating the symptoms. So as we're talking about brain energy theory and talking about metabolic um, dysregulation or metabolic deficiency, why are the manifestation of these mental illness 
differ from one another if you know they're all metabolic sort of dysregulation why are there so much difference when it comes to symptoms and there's so much difference when it comes to outcomes when treated with the same medications so <clears throat> you know at the end of the day we have numerous you know decades of neuroscience research looking for, for example, a diagnostic test for specific disorders like OCD. And one would think that people with OCD would have dysfunction in the exact same brain regions. Or people with PTSD would have dysfunction in the exact same brain regions. And that that would be different than people with OCD. But in fact, we don't have any diagnostic brain scans. Because people with PTSD can have dysfunction in all sorts of different regions of their brain. And likewise, same with OCD. And so one of the, one of the overarching facts that we need to confront in kind of thinking about how can we better understand mental illness. So we first have to recognize what should now be accepted as a fact based on decades and decades of research, that mental disorders, even if they have the same diagnostic label, mental disorders are heterogeneous, meaning that you can see abnormalities in brain function in different areas of the brain in different people, even with the exact same diagnosis. And so the way I think about it, is that all of these are metabolic disorders of the brain. But a metabolic problem can affect some regions of the brain more than others, based on a wide variety of factors that we could get into. But at the end of the day, it's as simple as different brain cells or brain regions respond to different hormones and inputs and other things. And so depending on the mix of biopsychosocial risk factors that someone has, including epigenetics and genetics and everything else, like everybody's different, quote unquote. So depending on the differences, people will develop metabolic brain dysfunction. And if you look at a brain scan, the brain scans can be very different from each other. But at the end of the day, people are going to develop symptoms that represent the weakest links in the brain. And so if, this, if the pathways or the neural networks that control OCD symptoms are most metabolically compromised, that person will end up having symptoms of OCD. Whereas another person may have weakness or vulnerability in the pathways that control depression, and that person will end up having symptoms of depression. Other people may develop symptoms of psychosis or mania or all the other symptoms, but that is the clearest way to think about it. The reason I think that, the reason I believe this is actually a superior way, a preferred way to think about mental illness as opposed to lumping everything into discrete categories. Like this person has OCD, this one has depression, this one has alcoholism. As intuitive and natural as those labels are, and you know, there are household names, everybody kind of knows what they are. 
We know what symptoms they are. It turns out that the overwhelming majority of people, especially people getting treatment for mental disorders, usually have more than one. And you can mix and match them any way you want. So they're really not discrete disorders. And if we, if we instead just recognize that person's pro entire brain is probably metabolically compromised, but it's only showing symptoms in the areas of vulnerability or the weakest links, so to speak. And that is why one person can have OCD and depression and an eating disorder, and another person might have a substance use disorder and a psychotic disorder and OCD, and another person might have you know anxiety and this and that. Um, the The reason I think it's helpful, though, is because if we understand that it's metabolic in nature, we can use general all-purpose metabolic strategies as treatment strategies. Diet, exercise, sleep improvement, stress reduction, all of those things. Now, to some people, they're going to think, well, Chris, you're hand-waving a lot. You're like, you're, you're just making stuff. You know, I'll give you a clear example. Why do people with type 2 diabetes have different symptoms? And how exactly can we understand all of these different symptoms? Some people with type 2 diabetes, maybe in the Verda clinic, are kind of sort of controlling it without medication through diet and exercise and other lifestyle strategies. And they are relatively healthy. Another person with diabetes may have heart attacks and strokes and liver failure and kidney failure and nerve neuropathy and uh, gut problems and brain problems and all sorts of problems. And we know that all of those things are in fact related to type 2 diabetes. So I could ask the same question, well, why does one person with type 2 diabetes have essentially no symptoms and another person with type 2 diabetes has symptoms all over their brain and body, affecting numerous organs? Why is that? Well, they're both metabolic problems, but it's all about severity and it's all about weakest links and which, one, which organs are most sensitive to failure. Um, and as I said before, you know, that overarching view of the forest is an important advancement in the mental health field. And we can use shotgun, general metabolic treatment strategies, diet, exercise, lifestyle, other lifestyle. We can use those overarching treatment strategies to address most of those symptoms. But if you're a scientist like you or me, we really want to know, no, but why, why does one person with diabetes develop liver failure and kidney failure and nerve failure and all these other failures? And another person with type 2 diabetes doesn't have any of that. How are they related? But we know they're related. Yeah. They're all related mm -hmm. to type 2 diabetes. So we know that it, it <clears throat> is somehow related. But what are the details? What are the molecular mechanisms that make one person develop neuropathy versus another? It's fascinating science. 
as scientists, as a scientist, I'd, I'd love to see those answers someday. I don't, I don't think I'm going to live long enough to see those answers. You, you hit love the bullseye. To see those answers. You hit the bullseye because one thing coming from basic science research into more clinical work, into, you know, really solving real life diseases, I had to come to terms with that. I had to come to terms that my curiosity may not get satisfied. I may not know the exact mechanism that is causing something or that is treating something, right? But at the end of the day, what I should actually care about is that, is this treatment working? Are these people improving their lives? Are these people actually reversing diseases that they thought could not ever re uh, reverse in their lifetime? And I think, I'm slowly sort of, you know, in the past few years, definitely understand that and also come to terms with that and also actually be happy that I'm actually making an impact in people's lives instead of just doing research for the sake of my curiosity, for the sake of just science and knowledge and, you know, lock myself in the lab and, and start doing pipetting work. Um, but it's what's being translated into people's life that need these solutions the most that makes the most more, most sense absolutely so like, i i, 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 I can relate couldn't agree more yeah i can relate i can relate and especially like for you who's a physician as well like at least for me i'm i'm a scientist through and through but and i don't see patients but for you you actually see these patients and you actually experience you know you listen to their stories and, and empathize with them and i'm sure you you know more than anyone want them to improve their symptoms so yes so would you you know i i know you implied this would you recommend the first line of defense is a lifestyle in intervention and like diet and, and exercise and stress reduction to treat these patients that comes to you uh, these patients that come to you with um mental disorder symptoms i would i I tend to put my overarching treatment strategy into two buckets. Okay. <clears throat> so bucket number one is probably the most important. And that is let's identify all of the factors that are impairing your metabolism and make a list. And so we're going to look for any metabolic or mitochondrial toxins in your life. That could be smoking cigarettes, alcohol, marijuana. It could be prescription medicines. It could be poor sleep, being in an abusive relationship, high levels of stress. All of these things directly impair metabolism and mitochondrial function. And as long as those things are unaddressed, it is unlikely that I am going to be able to help that person fully recover. So I want to just make a list usually with the patient or client, like let's look at all of the things that we can identify that might be contributing to your metabolic or mental problems. And, and then I would probably start with some of those things. I would probably say, let, which of these do you think you can work on? Um, and, uh, and then we would come up with treatment strategies. Let's get you to stop smoking. Let's improve your sleep. Let's maybe just clean up your diet just a tiny bit. I, I, 
I don't necessarily go whole hog on keto necessarily, but with psychotic patients and patients with really unstable bipolar disorder, I do because they usually need symptom relief immediately. They need the big guns. Um, and they want the big guns. And so I'm like, okay, if you want big guns, we're going keto. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but I'm still going to do all this other stuff. If they're not sleeping well, that needs to be addressed. Keto is not going to be effective if they are not sleeping well. So, so we're, we're going to identify that list, start to address some of those things. For some people with mild or even moderate disorders, that can be enough. They don't need to do the other stuff. But then I'm going to make a the second bucket are interventions, lifestyle strategies that will improve or enhance metabolism. What I really mean by that is improve or enhance mitochondrial function and the number of mito- number of healthy mitochondria in your cells. And those can include dietary strategies like the ketogenic diet. Those can also include vigorous exercise that is pushing and improving your capacity. So it is not just taking a walk around the block. If if taking a walk around the block is all you can do right now, great. We'll start with that. I'm, I'm all for meeting people where they're at, but I'm going to let them know at the outset. Our goal is to get you running around the block and then running a mile and then running two miles and then four miles and then, you know, whatever. If running is the thing you want to do or if you want to cycle or if you want to weight lift, we're going to go for progressive improvement in some metric. Um, For some people, I might consider thinking about supplements and other things. But, you know, a lot of it's one question that I'm getting asked a lot. So should everybody take CoQ10 because CoQ10 is good for your mitochondria? That'll fix everything. I'm like, no, that will not fix everything. Like, no. Um, If you are kind of engaging in all of these toxic lifestyle, you know, behaviors, toxic diet, poor sleep, um, no exercise, high levels of stress. CoQ10 isn't going to do anything for you folks. I'm sorry. CoQ10 is not going to touch that in at all. Um, and CoQ10 is not going to give you the benefits of a vigorous exercise program. We don't have exercise in a pill, at least not yet. So you're going to have to exercise. CoQ10 is not going to mimic the effects of the ketogenic diet. It's just not. So Will I sometimes you would I consider CoQ10 at some point in my treatment strategy? I might. Would I consider other supplements or vitamins or other things that might play a role? Yes. I mean, at the outset, I do I, I didn't mention this, but I do want people to get a reasonable medical assessment. So because those are some of the factors that can be interfering with your metabolism. The so if you have low thyroid hormone, that might be your primary problem. If you have vitamin B12 deficiency, vitamin B12 is instrumental in mitochondrial function, specifically in something called one-carbon metabolism. And one-carbon metabolism takes place in mitochondria. So <clears throat> if you have vitamin B12 deficiency, you might have all sorts of metabolic or mental mental symptoms or disorders. 
and if if we do, if somebody doesn't diagnose that and recognize that and treat that, that your your exercise isn't going to help you. And what are good course, keto? What may, are good sources of uh, vitamin B two, uh, B twelve? Sorry, B twelve. So B twelve is mostly from animal sourced foods. So the people at highest risk for B twelve deficiency are vegetarians and vegans. Um, but there is another type of B twelve deficiency that's due to an autoimmune disorder. Um, the, the human body requires something called intrinsic factor, which is a protein that helps you absorb B12. And some people don't secrete enough of this intrinsic factor, which means that even if they're eating lots of meat, they, may, they can't absorb vitamin B12 and they could become deficient. And so, you know, checking levels can be important and helpful. So doing basic metabolic health assessments, thinking about glucose levels, insulin resistance, um, you know, at least basic hormone levels, basic metabolic function tests, um, you know, liver function tests, those, those are going to help us create a comprehensive treatment plan. Um, but yeah, those two buckets, identify what's wrong and address it, and then think about metabolic enhancing treatments and start using some of those. And I think with that combination, I actually really believe we could probably get more than 50% of people better. People who are currently being told you have a lifelong chronic mental illness, we're really sorry. You just need to keep taking your pills and be disabled and accept that this is your fate in life. And take more pills to counteract the side effects that the first pill give. Yes. Yeah. And unfortunately, if those first pills are, or if any of those pills are impairing your metabolism, I am raising the red flag about the possibility that the very pills that you are taking is making it worse. Might be keeping you chronically ill. That is unfortunate. So, and and the, you know, even though there is an overarching theme as far as treatment strategy goes, you still go more personalized and really identify what is causing the metabolic dysfunction to begin with with these patients. Now, I have to ask you: Does exogenous ketones have any role to play, given that ketogenic diet has shown promising results? Is there some world where we can say for sure it's the presence of ketones in your body or is there the lowering of insulin that is caused by ketogenic diet or the lower carb intake it's what making the difference what, what are your thoughts on that i know lots of people yourself included are really interested in exogenous ketones and there is no doubt in my mind swallowing a bottle of ketones is so much easier than doing a ketogenic diet um, and and I want to help help the most people possible. And the real the real answer is that some people just aren't willing or aren't able to do a ketogenic diet. And so if exogenous ketones can be helpful for them, I am all for it. I think the real answer is that um, we don't know for sure, you know, what role exogenous ketones are going to be able to play in various. Um, metabolic and mental disorders. We don't know yet. I think it's an exciting area and of research and an exciting opportunity for uh, 
um, treatment innovation. Um, at the end of the day, based on everything that I know, I don't believe that exogenous ketones will mimic all of the effects of the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet is having dramatic and profound effects on the gut microbiome, on, as you mentioned, insulin and glucose levels, um, neurotransmitters, calcium channel regulation, all sorts of things. It's not clear how much of those effects are due to the presence of beta-hydroxybutyrate or another ketone body versus how much of those are kind of more generalized kind of effects of the macronutrients that people are consuming and or coupled with the lack of quote-unquote toxic foods that they might be consuming you're getting rid of a lot of processed foods. Um, you're getting rid of high sugar foods, high glycemic index foods. Um, and and those, all of those things are going to play a role on the gut microbiome, on glucose levels, insulin levels, everything else. Um, I do think that there are exciting opportunities for the use of exogenous ketones because I actually have reason to think that we might be able to develop diagnostic tests using exogenous ketones. For instance, doing a brain scan, a metabolic brain scan on somebody and then delivering exogenous ketones and do, repeating that brain scan one hour later to see for, look for changes in brain function. Um, and that, that type of a test might help us, number one, diagnose metabolic brain dysfunction. More importantly, it might tell us who might be more responsive to a ketogenic diet versus people who maybe have a different problem. Um, exogenous ketones probably will not be all that helpful to somebody with vitamin B12 deficiency. If somebody has severe vitamin B12 deficiency, ketones aren't going to save the day. And I would guess... I don't know this for sure, but I would guess that exogenous ketones will not rescue that person's brain function um, because B12 is just essential to mitochondrial function and metabolic health. And um, so you can flood the person with ketones and that's not, that's not the magic ingredient that they need. Probably similar with thyroid hormone, although thyroid hormone, it gets a little more complicated, but um, exogenous ketones might have some effect on them. But nonetheless, I think we clear opportunities for diagnostic tests and assessments. I think there are clear opportunities for augmentation of low carbohydrate or ketogenic diets. So for people who need high levels of ketones, but they just can't do it, um, for whatever reason. Sometimes they're on medications that are actually impairing their ability to do it. So antipsychotic medications in particular increase your insulin and glucose levels regardless of what you do with your diet. Antipsychotic medications cause your pancreas to secrete insulin. So if somebody is taking an antipsychotic medication, they may have trouble achieving high levels of ketones even if they are doing the diet perfectly. That person might benefit from doing the ketogenic diet and augmenting it with exogenous ketones in order to get more of a therapeutic effect. 
And then I can think of many opportunities for exogenous ketones. So there's really exciting emerging evidence of the use of ketones and the ketogenic diet for people with alcohol use disorder. They too have been found to have metabolic brain dysfunction. But somebody with alcohol use disorder, you know, one of the biggest challenges is that they sometimes have intense cravings for alcohol. And alcohol is the only thing they can think of to make those cravings go away. And I would be really interested to see a clinical trial where we offer a group of people with alcohol use disorder exogenous ketones and kind of instruct them. If you feel like you have an overwhelming craving for alcohol, we want you to drink this bottle of ketones, set a timer for 30 minutes, and then make a decision about whether you really need that drink or not. And my hunch is that exogenous ketones might help reduce that person's cravings for alcohol. I am not aware of anybody who's done that research. I just learned last week that there might be a researcher, I'm not going to name names, but there might be somebody pursuing some of that research. But so again, I think it's just a really exciting opportunity to explore this because there are so many therapeutic opportunities and so many exciting kind of science opportunities that have direct application. It's not nerdy science just for the sake of science. These interventions can help real human beings whose lives are being held back or sometimes decimated by these chronic mental disorders. And if these tools if this line of research can help improve their life, I am all for it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think this is very much in line with what we do at Healthfire Modern Nutrition, where even though we are selling Ketone IQ, with, with, which is uh, exogenous ketone, and this show itself is sponsored by Ketone IQ, but ultimately what I tell people is that it is a supplement. Before you use a supplement, you need to fix a foundation. You have to have the foundation set. You have your sleep, you have your nutrition, you have your exercise, physical activities. Because as you said, you know, CoQ10 is not the magic pill. Same with exogenous ketone. It's not, it's not the magic pill. If you, because if you are consuming a lot of processed food, a lot of high sugar processed food, having a shot of ketones will not help you, right? Um, so it's the same concept here. And the reason I ask whether or not the role of exogenous ketones may, may, may be beneficial is just from a, a, a presence of beta-hydroxybutyrate in, in the body itself. But as, as you elucidated, it's a lot more complicated than just having beta-hydroxybutyrate present in your body. It's a lot to do with lifestyle. It's a lot to do with you know what you do 24 hours uh, of the day, you know? Um, so uh, with that, would you like to have any, any closing remark around, you know, people who are either um, interested in the area, who are either, who, are, who might be struggling with mental illness? Um, any closing remarks from you? So the first one is, I really do want you to learn about this metabolic theory of mental illness. And the easiest way to do that is read the book, but I'm not trying to sell my book. So go to the library and rent the book or watch, watch some other podcasts and try to learn as much about the theory as you can. You can start to piece a lot of it together. There are some, some parts of the book available for free, but 
if you can get the book, get the book, read the whole book. I want you to understand the science because once you understand the science, you can start to do those two things that I said, identify all the problems that are impairing your metabolism. You can begin to address them and then you can do the other stuff. I want to encourage people to visit brainenergy.com. So uh, you can take a free mental and metabolic health assessment there that will help you identify some areas of um, strength and maybe some areas of concern. So if you are struggling with your mental or metabolic health, it can outline some areas that you should think about targeting. For full disclosure, I'm just going to tell you now, I am not offering panacea treatments for each and every assessment. That's not the way this works. Um, you need to understand the big picture. You need to identify all the things that are impairing you. But, but I'm giving you an assessment that will help with some biomarkers or some just general you know, ways to identify I may have a problem. Um, and that can be really helpful. Um, in terms of it, it can help you target your treatments um, and 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 then finally I just want to say like I am really interested in changing the mental health field far too many people are suffering and struggling and are not getting better with current treatments you know for the people getting better with current treatments I'm all for them I'm not standing in the way of current effective treatments if they're working for you but mental disorders are not the leading cause of disability on the planet. It's not because people aren't getting treatment. It's because the treatments aren't working. People are desperate for more answers, and we need change. We need huge change. And I do invite people to join our growing grassroots movement. We want to change the mental health field. We want people to take this seriously and begin offering metabolic and mental health treatment. Amazing. And um, where can our listeners find you on uh, social media? Um, so if you go to brainenergy.com, you can follow me on social media there. Or you can learn more about my specific research with ketogenic diet at chrispalmermd.com. And I'm also all my social media channels are there, too. You can follow me on whatever you Amazing. Well, Chris, it has been a pleasure. It's such a, an exciting area that you're working in. I can't wait to see what you pull out next.